Well, welcome, everybody. It's good to see you. Um, we have a great speaker tonight. Rick Petronella is a dear friend of ours personally and professionally. And I'm going to tell you about his topic first, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. Uh, the topic is about the truth about lying. Does dishonesty and addiction go hand in hand? I think the answer is yes. Uh, for most loved ones of people with substance abuse problems, lying is the ultimate betrayal of trust, which makes supporting someone who is lying very difficult. Rick is going to talk about this, the mechanism of dishonesty, the mechanism for survival, individuals with substance abuse disorders, mental illness, what they have to do to survive, and lying is a part of that. So that is what he's going to talk about. Obviously, he'll go in greater detail, but let me just tell you a little bit about Rick, how qualified he is to be here. He served as the clinical director of a neuropsychiatric, psychiatric, and substance abuse hospital treatment program in both California and Georgia from 1987 to 1996. Um, currently, he is responsible for the clinical services and treatment program at a place called Choices. He's a clinical director there, which is a state-approved substance abuse treatment program. He has also served in a Christian leadership position for over 30 years. He's the founding pastor of a church in California. He holds dual doctorates, one in religious education, one in clinical psychology. He holds, gosh, Rick, I'm embarrassed to say all this. I'm not even qualified to introduce you. <laughs> he also holds dual master's degrees, one in theology, one in marriage and family and child therapy. He is a certified master's addiction counselor, a certified clinical advanced alcohol and drug counselor. He's also a certified clinical supervisor as well as holding certificates in addictionology, forensic psychology, and domestic violence. He is the founder of Compass Consulting and Affiliates and Choices Treatment Program in Sandy Springs, as I said, where he serves as a clinical director. He is eminently qualified to be here tonight. So, Rick, I'm going to pray for you, then I'm going to welcome you to the podium. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for Rick and how you've used him in a mighty way in just so many areas of life, both in the secular and the religious realms, God. Just pray tonight that he will speak words of truth, hope, and encouragement to us about lying and manipulation to help us better understand what our loved ones go through and the survival mechanisms they have to use to, in their minds, survive this, Lord. We just pray now that you'll speak through him in a mighty way, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Welcome, Brother Rick. It's kind of embarrassing listening to all that credentials, but there's a story behind that. When I first... Uh, went to college, I had a desire really to be a, to go into ministry, and that was really my passion, and had a, a real, inter a very personal relationship experience with God in high school. I, went, I grew up Catholic, and uh, went to an all-boys Catholic school, and uh, m my junior year of high school, a friend of mine took me to a, a roller skating night Bible study at E.V. Free Ch Church Fullerton, Chuck Swindoll's church. This is back when it was small. And they had skating and never did that with a church group, but Catholics don't typically know how to have, draw the, 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 the others in, but, they, but the, church, the Baptist church did, so I should say E.V. Free did. And so we skated and had, you know, got to just hang out and meet people. And then midway, they stopped and, and had a Bible study. We were sitting on our skates on the floor, and somebody shared the gospel. And I heard for the first time of a, 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 just a, the, the reality of who Jesus is in a way that was just eye-opening, and I was just 16 years old. 
And, you know, it, 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 towards the end of the talk, the, you know, the, the speaker said, you know, does anybody here want to receive Christ as a Savior? Just raise your hand. And my hand went right up. I'm the only one that went up. And there must have been 50, 60 kids there. And I thought, I, mi- I misunderstood what the guy said, you know. And, 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 and then so we, we prayed. At the end, I went up and talked to them. But it was such a profound experience. I'd grown up in a home that was kind of dysfunctional and things were just difficult and a lot of legalism and stress and and in just alcoholism history about my parents and so it was just a, a place that I found pure love that was just unbelievable and said I actually said that that year I want to spend the rest of my life talking about this God and learning about him so I graduated high school that next year early a year early and went right into college and then went to seminary from there and and that's where I got my seminary education then went back to California I'm from California and uh, worked in a, in a couple churches and then was asked to start a church in Loma Linda, California. Now, there's a few of you that might remember this story, but years ago, back in the early 80s, at Loma Linda University, they had, they had conducted a uh, heart transplant on, on a newborn with a baboon heart. Anybody remember that story? We started the church during all that, so the press were everywhere, and it was quite an experience. But... Uh, that was that was kind of the time we started the church and got it going. And of course, the story, the little child lived for some time, but it was so sick, it just couldn't survive and it died. But it was just, I mean, it was, that was record-breaking at the time. And so all that to say, um, started the church and was working in it and, and loved the ministry. It was a startup and we ended up growing. And then uh, I, I found myself gravitating more and more to counseling. And back in the days when I was in seminary, you didn't have a lot of counseling classes. You had one or two. That was it. And it was very, I'll be, I'll be honest, it was very legalistic. It was newthetic. If you're living right with God, you're not going to have problems. And uh, really, that's what we're taught. So unfortunately, a lot of pastors were sent out representing a message of, 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 to broken people that was really unsustainable. And so... I did. I did. In turn, wrote to the seminary. Said, "Guys, you got to do more. You got to talk more about how to help broken lives because that's all we're doing." So, in that in that desire, I went back and got a second master's degree in marriage, family, child therapy, and got licensed in California, and then continued pastoring. Then went on uh, for the clinical teaching, clinical psych at University of California, Irvine. When I finished that, I had to make a decision, really, what to do, and I decided to turn the pulpit over to the associate and. I became a full-time Christian psychologist, and through that, I was able to get into a lot of hospital programs because I could speak to the church community, and they create, uh, you know, brings in people into the hospital to get help, where typically psychiatry is very much a taboo in the church. I was able to integrate scripture and talk about God, and it, and it really opened up an opportunity, so I was able to write Christian therapy programs for eating disorders, substance abuse, all the different types, and so... I really had almost full reign to do whatever I wanted because I generated census, and that, that, that always helps. And so I'll have to say, you know, through that, my wife wanted to come back to Georgia, and, and then Bronner Psychiatric Hospital at the time was, still, was looking for a clinical director, and I went back over there and, and stayed there until they ended up closing up. So then from there, went back into private practice. So that's kind of the overview um, of the credential part of it. Um, this whole topic that we're dealing with, and even the title that I really – Really prayed about what to talk about. I think it's something that is in the very fabric of, of substance abuse. You know, lying, dishonesty, uh, characters, the characteristics of people change, and it's often we look upon those that are addicted or, or alcoholics and abusing drugs as we don't even know them anymore. We don't even know them at all. 
and in some ways we don't want to know them, but we have to because we're blood. And there's a there's kind of a love-hate dynamic that goes on that is so profoundly confusing and frustrating and exasperating. It, it just becomes more and more helpless and hopeless that we all go into a depression in not knowing how to help or what to do with one we love so much. And, you know, it's just a very difficult challenge. So, so what we share tonight is not so much a point of broadcasting the, the character defects of one that's u- of using substances, but to understand as a m- mechanism how to survive. So some of the research that I did, if you turn to the first page, is interesting. I'll read some of this to you as, as we'll talk about it here. Is, you know, it, you know, it's, it's facetiously said that one thing about alcoholics and addicts is that they are always 100% dishonest. That's not true. And statistics will prove that. I, I would have thought, of course they are, because we're so stigmatized and we're affected. But there are many that are struggling, but they don't necessarily live the, the dishonest element to it. And so as, we, as I did the research, it became more evident to understand. What I began to see, I think, if we really understand the mind of one that struggles with substances, is that they, are, they, they, they experience some kind of a high that absolutely takes away all the pain, all the anxiety, all of the distress, and it feels so helpful and hopeful that they want to keep going back to that place. They don't calculate... I want to be an addict, and here's how I'm going to accomplish that. They just want to go back to that place that doesn't hurt. And if we can see that in a, in a state of their brokenness, we can begin to have more compassion. And we're going to talk about the compassion a little bit later and kind of see how that ties in to really trying to see them differently in a, in a reframed state. I think at times with what they put us through and the struggles that we go through are so Exhausting and, 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 and bat- we're so battle weary that we can only see problems, trouble, here it comes. And that's, we, we lock into that, so we're defensive at the very moment our eyes lock, which again, what does that reinforce? A hostile environment, and the, the, the tensions are there, and it becomes impossible to have any kind of conversation. Can you relate to me at all with that? Mm-hmm. It's just what happened? How did it get to this point? And in their mind, they're probably thinking the same. I don't understand why they're so upset. Of course, they don't see what we see. They're not experiencing what we experience. They're just enjoying a way of not hurting anymore. And that becomes an element of clarity as we, as we kind of understand more and more about addiction and the disease behind it and the need to medicate pain and try to hope that the pain will just go away. But clearly we know with mood-altering substances, you need more and more and more. And in doing so, that's where the character changes, the personality changes, and it becomes a much more of a, of a challenge to even communicate or even live with someone who's actively using. So I put here, lying at its basic level is an act of dishonesty that's made with a conscious intention to deceive. More than that, it seriously undermines and breaks down happiness and trust in relationships. Now when we talk about what the research talks about here, you know, you know there's, there's a notion that they all lied. But, uh, but the truth is that if, there's a, if substance abusers have a profound character flaw that results in chronic lying, but if you uh, look up liars and, and substance abusers, you'll find 408,000 articles. 408,000 articles about the whole dynamic. But ironically, there are the, those that will say, no, not all substance abusers or alcoholics lie. So that, I kind of think that's redemptive because we tend to think they lie so much, you, you, you have no ability to understand truth, and therefore, in turn, you want, you want less and less to do with them. 
But if you understand that we can get away from that all bad element, we might be able to hear what they're saying in between that that could, could stabilize things and kind of help turn break the cycle and turn it back another way. And sometimes that takes enormous grace and enormous patience and, and, a, and a willingness to kind of step back and continue to, to revisit it in a way that, that you're not so absorbed in it that it automatically takes a life of its own when they walk in the room. And those of us that have been there know what that is. So, the, you know, the fact is, again, as I've cited a few times, it's not, you know, it's not true that all people who struggle with substances are liars. It is common for everyone, for, for even people who don't use substance to lie, and the behaviors that they have they're not proud of. So statistics will show any behavior we're not proud of, a person tends to lie. All of us, oops, we all fall in that camp. And there's not necessarily a, a monopoly over those that are, that are, that are self-medicating. When one is struggling with drugs or alcohol, they're not proud of that behavior. Now, have you ever thought of that? They're not proud of it? You th- would you think they're even thinking about that? One of the underlining premises that are always going to be uh, identified is the shame. What they're doing, what they've done, how they got to this point, there's a profound shame. In turn, they increase their substance abuse to, to overcompensate for that inner conflict. Now it's not just about medicating pain and escaping the hurt or, or the feelings that become so difficult to manage. Now it's compounded because of behavior, maybe losing jobs, maybe uh, you know, whatever might be the case. Now it's shame and, and probably guilt as well as just a sense of losing who they really are. And yet there, we don't hear that. We don't hear that part of it. We just know what's coming and what's happened and, and, and it, the, po- the probabilities of it happening again keep us in that vicious cycle. So when we begin to try to sort through it, trying to stay objective is very hard and, and we'll talk more clearly about that in, in just a bit. But I, I think what's important is if we can understand, I think my hope would be we would begin to see the, the, the dynamic of that loved one differently. And if we can hold on to the innocence of what we know them to be at one time, it's still in there. One thing we know is another fact is alcoholic substance abusing uh, personality types are some of the most passionate, compassionate, empathetic, intelligent, creative minds in the world. We know that. And sometimes they have sensory overload of their emotions and it becomes to feel is to hurt and that's where the pain becomes more and more difficult to manage, hence you look for ways to relieve that pain. And so if we can get, begin to see the genius in who that person is and somehow hold on to it amidst of all that's going on, it gives us a little bit of hope and kind of keeps us more towards the center rather than drawing conclusions that may not be anywhere close to truthful about that person. You know, um, Is it difficult for you, those of you that have loved ones struggling, is it difficult for you to see the good in them? Anybody? And, and why would that be? Anyone? They've hurt us. Absolutely. And they've hurt us, and they've lied, and they've stolen, and they've broken things, and they've, and they, our dream for them is gone. And then we personalize that, and it hurts at a level. It's like who can you tell? That's what's so great about the Prodigal Ministries. It's a place that you could, you know, others are where you are, and you can talk and interact in ways that at least you have an outlet to understand maybe how others are coping and dealing with it, that you're not alone. 
And that's the beauty of the body of Christ. That's the beauty of connection that we're not isolating with that. We also realize the more a person uses substances, the more they isolate. The more they isolate, the more distorted reality becomes for them. Now they're believing and thinking things that may not be happening, and they're acting on that accordingly, even though there's no verification of that happening. And that's when they tend to kind of get too much in their own head with that. Okay, I'm going to move on here. I'm on the next page. So what is the struggle? It is always our desire to have our loved ones stop the drug and alcohol abuse. We really want them to change, and they just don't want, they don't have the desire to stop. And yet that even frustrates us more because we can see what's happening, we can see where it's headed, and they just have the stubbornness to just, they're not going to do it. And some will tell you they've stopped, but not or not. Some will just say, I'm not going to stop. But there's a part of us that begins to cringe and take it to a very deep part of who we are because we sense the, the dynamic of what's happening and we end up sometimes breaking the relationship with that loved one because we, we can't deal with it. We're not, we're not really prepared to how to deal with it. But the key is that love has to be sustainable at all times, even though they've broke our hearts, even though they've stolen things, even though they've done things that, that you would think your worst enemy would ever do to you. But it, it comes to a point that we then begin to think, you know, they, they are just not that same person, and we begin to really, you know, love a person, hate a person that we once loved. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. But the lying continuum, I think, is something we can deal with, and we're going to kind of talk about how to work out of this, right? Often we think about the issues that surround our loved one's lying. The truth is, when they are really struggling and with the lying problem, much like the substance abuse problem, there is an added component of shame. Underneath the temptation to lie about their behavior, they feel significant shame about what they are doing. Hence, the vicious cycle continues. So we know that they're lying, they become shame for lying, and they keep lying to cover up this, and then they, they basically go self-medicate even more, and then it, it puts us in such a conundrum with them that we're just, we're just in a helpless state, and then everything just polarized, everything just shuts down, and they walk out. And, there's so much more we had to say and so much more we want to say, and yet we, we, we're just at a, at, a, at a fractured state emotionally. And that's where we kind of have to provide self-care for ourselves because in that environment, you can absolutely burn out. You can absolutely lose yourself in a way by nature of what's, what's happening and what we've been through. So, so if our loved one is struggling to tell the truth, some questions. How do we talk to them so they tell the truth that we might support them? How do we help them want to change their behavior? How should we communicate when knowing that you suspect a cycle of lying? How, do you, how, to, how to have a conversation when you can't trust what that person is saying? What, what do you want them to just hear your thoughts and concerns? So these questions I'm posing are, are rhetorical, but in the, in the efforts of like, what is the intention that you would have mostly for that loved one? What is it you want them to hear that seems to not happen? That we either mess up and don't say it right, or they end up being intolerant walking out of the room. How do we get them, how do we draw them in that they see that we really, really care rather than that they're going to get our wrath? And part of that, again, more and more as we look at that, the closer we get to, that, to the issues at hand, the more we lose perspective. And so part of us is almost we have to put on a different hat than just the parent that's being, uh, you know, that's being used or the parent that's been, been hurt. 
we have to see what's really going on here. And as parents and, and loved ones, you have a gift from God that can discern that if you stay with it. But if you throw out, everything goes catastrophic, you're not going to access anything but, but just more rage and hurt and frustration. But if you stop and think about it, look at the heart and soul of that child. Look at the heart and soul of that, of that loved one. If you look past all that has been so damaged and see that inner self of that one that you know so well as a, little, as a young person and try to find them in there somewhere. That can give you some compassion. That can give you a level of sympathy. That can give you even a, a sense of brokenness for them. And it's a matter of really taking the time to even discipline ourselves to stay with that to, to feel it. Because we feel fully justified 100% for staying angry and being upset and being you know, uh, indignant about what they're doing. And that's true. We do and we can and we've earned that. Now what, what does it get us? More of a broken relationship. And the more that we become frustrated, the more they become frustrated. The more they get frustrated, we get more frustrated. And we all regress into a much more immature, premature, um, ineffective person rather than somebody trying to stay at, at a better place and not go there. And, and it is challenging, and it can always be. When we talk about communication dynamics, we, the, the effort, the, the true sense of this, we want to connect to them. How can we connect to them amidst what their struggle is? They're probably not going to want to connect because we have been so, you know, maybe so judgmental and so condescending and so angry, fully justified. But in their state, that becomes to them the threat. So what can draw us in that they're interested in maybe hearing what we have to say, that they hear more of our love and concern more than our frustration and at times uh, despair and anger? It's a difficult question to answer. A lot has to do with where we are emotionally at the time, right? (coughs) Excuse me. You know, so we're hoping for a line of communication over time. The last, the last line on this page here is: figure out where you want to end up ahead of time. They're not home. They're not with you. But you're thinking through all this, and you've been so overcome and, and frustrated and just helpless. Pull back and think about what is where do I want to end up with a conversation? What's the outcome I would hope for? Now you're raising the bar and creating more of an objectivity that's less overwhelming uh, emotional charge because now we're trying to set some objectives. Now we have to determine what do I have to become to be able to communicate at the level that they see my heart rather than my wrath. And by God's grace, he'll give us what we need to get through that conversation because they're going to they're gonna come at you the same way that, that they're used to you coming at them. And everything just breaks down real quick. So the trust is often fractured and uh, the, the ability or willingness to connect is often uh, very, we're intolerant of one another. And they feel that, that we hate them more than anything in this world. And, and in turn, they, they, they create scenarios so we will hate them. Fine, I'll punch hole if I don't care and walk out. And that just wants to send you through the roof. But in trying to pull back and figure out what, 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 what is the message? What, is, what do you want to accomplish at the end of a conversation? And think, think about that question for a minute as we, as we walk through this. You need to focus on managing your part of the communication regardless of what the substance abuser is saying. They're going to go into what they've always gone into, but 
there's a different agenda this time. You're at a different place this time. You're going to try to, to begin to let them have their rant, but don't necessarily jump on the bandwagon and, and try to balance it out with, with, with accusations. There's two basic kinds of communication. There's one that we call complementary, that we're on the same level. There's another one called symmetrical, where one overpowers the other and things escalate. So if, if we're in a situation, this also works with any kind of relationship. If somebody has a pattern of attack and that person begins to come at you and you're not playing, you're not going anywhere, all of a sudden, extinction sets in. That person doesn't do that because it didn't work. It didn't work. In a crazy, dysfunctional way, the intensity of arguing creates an intimacy. And in some kind of sick way, it meets a need. We walk away just fragmented, but there has been a need met because we connected. It's kind of sick, huh? But we all do it. Even husbands and wives that are lonely and angry, they'll create an argument just to have some direct tension, passion, focus. And so we have to be at times self-aware enough to know what our agendas are anytime we try to connect with people. But the key of this has to be we have to begin to understand this can't continue. And we have to figure a way. It may take three or four attempts, five attempts. It may be this fifth or sixth attempt. All of a sudden, they're taking a different point of listening to you. And you see them a little more attentive, and they're not walking out as quickly. Because hopefully, they'll see the sincerity of your heart. And they'll recognize there's a part of what's happened that you're beginning to own. And we'll talk more about that. That is your part of this. And that's very important as well. On top of page four, what is the goal? To help them think about what they need to do differently. Get a job. Be more punctual. Clean up their messes. Do not require them to fess up and be more honest. Help them circumvent the line and steer the conversation towards topics that can help them do a better job moving forward. Focusing on the lie can only move you away from your end goal, trying to support a positive behavior change. And, and so what we mean by that is if we, if we try to tell them what they clearly need to do and haven't done, we just keep digging the hole deeper. We've got to get away from all that and, and, and try to get a sense from them, like what, what, what can we help them begin to do differently that hasn't maybe worked in a very sincere, earnest, and empathic way. And often the kids will begin to pick up on it, but they may not trust it. But they'll watch it and, and, and see where it goes. And we just have to hope and pray that we'll have the patience to sustain that. That's the divine intervention is what they call that. And, and in that, though, we were able to find ourselves, even part of them, softening and not ready to retaliate because they see that you're not, you're not going to shoot back at them, that you're coming at them openly and, 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 and sincerely. You know, our desperation can come across as an attack, believe it or not. Because it's intense and it's, we're just frustrated and we're exasperated with things that just wipe us out. That they have to see uh, an olive branch offered. And this is the hard part. They don't deserve it. To be honest. But if the changes are going to happen, we have to begin to, to, to really be that change agent to hope that we can get to a better place. And the, that better place will we'll stay in that better place. So, so, you know, where I'm going with this is oftentimes this is impossible if we're too close to them, if the situation is too close. Now, you can see I have this, um, this uh, little, little 
uh, picture of uh, on, on one on the far left is the word anger on the far right is the word hate now coming from a, a background of ministry I, I love I love language I love Hebrew Greek and and, and all and all the different word studies in, in in scripture and that's something I still continue to enjoy and what begins to happen in um, when we think of hate let me ask the question is it can we be a Christian in hate can, can Exactly. We can hate sin. Proverbs 6. I have the scripture written down here. Verses, chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Um, Solomon writes, There are six things God hates. Seven things are an abomination to him. And then he lists the seven areas that, uh, that represent people, his children being hurt. And he hates to see us hurt. Now, how does that, how do we work off of that? In the Hebrew, the word hate means to have nothing to do with it, to completely differentiate from it, completely be separated. And the word differentiation is in that, where God has removed himself from the things that would hurt his children. Well, let's, let's, let's apply that. Leviticus 17, 19. Moses writes, speaking on behalf of God, you shall not hate your, fellow, your, your, your brother or your fellow countrymen, but you shall reprove him for the things he's done. Hate the sin, not the sinner. We've heard that before. But in order to hate the sin, not the sinner, you have to begin to objectify a process to understand what's really going on. When we have an ex- this extremes of anger versus hate, anger is a subjective emotion. It tends to... Um, let me draw this out. Oh, thank you. That one's too light. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All righty. When we have it, when we have an emotion like anger, oftentimes it it stems from an unknown source. It's we're just frustrated, we're aggravated, we're, we're irate, we're angry, we're this, we're that. All of it has an overlap. Us. The issues. And when we work from a subjective point, the issues are, are a contamination into our world, into our life. We can't get any peace when we stay angry and irritated and frustrated. And that keeps us from a point of ever being able to be objective. Now, when we go to the point over here of hate, this isn't necessarily a a continuum. This is another whole experience. Hate is objective. It has a who, a what, a when, and a where. So when we begin to look at the word hate in the world you and I live in, we begin to understand that we can see that loved one and we can see what they're doing and what they've done to us and what they've done to the family, and we can hate what they've done call it out, hate what they've done, but see it separate from who they are. Because if we just hate them for what they've done, now we're working from this and we'll never get away from it. 
But if we begin to approach it from an objective point of view, we can get some clarity and perspective to come back to say, what do I really want to accomplish in my next conversation? Forget this. This, is, this will never get there. You'll be hostile. You'll be frustrated. Everybody's wiped out with that one. But if you can approach it different and more objectively, hating what they've done, looking at them separately, you already now are taking some control of how that conversation can go because you're not going to lop it all into one big mass and then attack. And it's easy to do. It's much more difficult to practice this until you really begin to see the fruit of it. So as we begin to understand that we can hate what they've done and really see it for what it is, we, we find a freedom because we're no, longer, we're no longer bound, you know, with the anger and the frustration of it all. We're able to separate and see it in a way that we're stepping out of the, of the malaise of all of the anger, hostility, frustration, confusion, chaos. We don't have to do that. It's a wonderful feeling when you step out of it. It's a wonderful feeling to get you back even though nothing's changed. And as we get ourselves back, we, then we can step back and understand maybe there can be some hope here. Maybe now the mind's clear enough to come up with some creative thoughts that, this, that our loved one will begin to listen better and maybe respond differently. And I believe this. A lot of times that our loved one doesn't go to treatment, I think oftentimes has more to do with the family members than themselves. I just do. I can't say that's statistically accurate, but I've seen enough where the family has said so much damaging things that any effort of showing hope or love is discounted at that point. And we try to recover innocently after we've said some things we shouldn't have, but the damage is done. Now we have to wait for some healing and try to approach it differently later. But the, one, the times we do damage is when we're approaching it subjectively. If you can see it objectively and truly see them separate from what's going on, you can have that compassion, sincerity, and desire to help them change and grow and really become much more, much more maybe willing in ways that before we didn't think that they'd ever get there. So when we get too close, we're not going to have the ability to manage it or understand really uh, the best way to approach it. We step back, objectify it, hate what they're doing, see them different from that, it's a very freeing, powerful thing. This same principle works in our own lives. If there are things we hate about ourselves, we don't condemn and shame ourselves. We hate what we're doing and begin to love ourselves in a way that, we, that really we were created to. We are not what we do. We become what we do because of how we see ourselves in a negative light. And that's a whole new talk we can deal with. Okay, responsibility versus blame. Responsibility, responsibility means, means, I'm sorry, Responsibility means being held accountable for the consequences of one's behavior. One can be encouraged to take responsibility, be accountable, and then build self-esteem through owning their part in a decision that is made, good or bad. There's a kind of responsibility that is not true responsibility, but false responsibility. And false responsibility is, is a responsibility that does not belong to you, that you do not own, that is not yours. When someone tries to make you responsible to accept responsibility that belongs to that person, they tell you that it's your fault, that you are to blame for something that has happened or, or for the way they feel or some other chronic situation. It is done through shifting blame, manipulation, gaslighting, you're hearing more of that word, using guilt, shame, and anger to induce feelings of responsibility. It is a strategy for avoiding the wrongdoing. Have you ever had that experience with with that loved one who's blaming you for where they're at. And somehow, 
we kind of believe it. Now, we can't, they're responsible for the choices they've made. We may have made a lot of mistakes in the, early to that point, but we're not responsible for, for where they're currently at and what they're currently doing. And if we take that on, then we really need to step back and, and figure out how we can work through that before we try to have any more dialogue. Number two is when you take responsibility that does not belong to you, you make their, their responsibility yours. As human beings, we have the ability to take in and take on feelings that do not belong to us. How, how many struggle with that? Yeah, it's, it's tough. It's like, where, where do we begin to see our part in it, even if there really isn't any specific evidence? But we take that on. Let me tell you, that's one of the master, masteries that, that substance abusers have learned to use. They're highly manipulative. They're, they're brilliant. They're brilliant. And that's where we find ourselves sometimes caught off guard with something that really derails our conversation because they said something that really hits home at some point or they're trying to just gaslight us or, or shift to point to get it off us and we're, we're paralyzed by that. But if, but if we are able to stay objective to what's going on, we can see with, with discernment much more clear to clarity what's going on, and we can recover that, that derailment and, and bring it back on them if we are willing to look and see and really approach it very differently. What are the consequences of false responsibility? Um, let's go to the examples. They blame you for getting wet, denying responsibility for their decision to, to leave without an umbrella. It's your fault, right? You wrongly accept the blame and take responsibility for their decision. This responsibility does not belong to you. Another example, you try to help them stop drinking. While they say that they appreciate your help, they do not change. They blame you for the drinking because you didn't help them correctly. You accept the blame, taking responsibility for their behavior. Your loved one continues to, to feel, I'm sorry, your loved one continually feels inadequate and states that you cause him to feel that way. They, they may accept, many accept this blame because they're unaware of your right to refuse the blame. You are feeling a feeling that doesn't belong to you. Um, you know, that's, it's a point sometimes I think where, I don't know, I'm, I'm, some of the things I'm sharing right now, I'm reliving some examples. But I, but I think for us we have to we have to be we have to be discerning and alert enough to see it for what it is rather than take that on and the conversation's over. Any of you had that example being blamed for something you didn't do? Yeah, and it's sometimes we do as parents love and and, and want to help, and so we will kind of think maybe it is our fault for certain things. And if there's a granular, microscopic p- point that some of that is ours, the rest is still theirs. And we have to keep that perspective that we're not going to take that on. Because as we do, we lose objectivity. We become more saddened and grieving that this is happening. And we're trying to fix something we didn't break. And it it plays into a whole dynamic of of just the the vicious cycle that continues. Okay, let's go to page six. Sometimes, however, the lie must be addressed. Now, here, what are we talking about? We're trying to think of, well, we're trying to figure how to negotiate with them, how to manage them, how to approach them more objectively, how to differentiate what's happened to seeing them separate from the issues. We're trying to figure out how to connect with them in a way to, to hopefully head towards a better outcome. But there's also a time. Sometimes the lie has to be addressed. We have to just take it on. How do we do that effectively without damaging them in a way that doesn't just 
add to the add gasoline to the fire of what we're already feeling. That's really the, the brilliance of how we figure out how to speak truth and love. And it truly is the masterful thought, having grace, truth, and love in, in a combination that has a better outcome. Now, sometimes if we use grace and love, it can be sometimes mimicked as almost enabling. But it isn't. It isn't. We can be firm, lovingly firm, and hold them accountable for something they did and not, and not destroy their character. We can point something out in a way that clearly is, is inconsistent with other things that are going on in a concerned way rather than a critical way. They can blame shift us and, and hold us responsible, but if we can catch ourselves and realize, you know better than that. You, you, you know I didn't have anything to do with that. You don't have to sh- use a double barrel shotgun with it. You can put it back out there and they, know, they now know they can't go anywhere with it because they know you know better. And that's where more shifting will come in. They'll get away from the topic because they can't really challenge it because they know you're right. But you don't have to go down that rabbit trail. You can stay on topic. You can get them to own it at some level, not by pinning them against the wall, but by a sense of conviction that they realize you, you got their number and you're not going to go down that path. Just don't get on the bandwagon with them. That's probably the harder thing we have to relearn is there's, there's a pattern now that we jump right into automatically. And we have to realize by the conversation we have before we speak to them, what do we want at the end of the conversation to be? What, what, what is the outcome? If we keep that in mind, it'll keep you grounded, it will keep you sane, and it'll keep the whole situation from unraveling. Now, they may walk out frustrated because you didn't, you didn't jump in, but it's not because of, 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 of you upsetting them. It's because they, they, they're caught, and so in trying to get the lie to deal with, it has to come out. So in these cases, it can be helpful to step back, try to understand the function of the lie. Try to hold the idea that the lie they are not using, for example, is probably not meant to be hurtful to you. Rather, it is an unnecessary attempt to maintain a relationship with you, I'm sorry, unsuccessful attempt to maintain a relationship with you and avoid the discomfort of a fight or confrontation. So obviously... Lies in, in many ways from, you know, happen with, with, you know, with, with a person that's been using is really self-protection. It's really a point of hoping that you can stay connected with them. And it isn't to, it isn't to upset you. It isn't to offend you. It's just a mechanism of survival. So reduce it to what it really is. You say, I'm, I haven't used. The cup says positive. You just peed in the cup. You don't have to argue. It points there. You just set it down and say, you know, your 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 screen's dirty, and because of that, you're, you know, you're not going to go out, or you're not going to do it. You don't have. There's arguments over. We don't have to go any further with it. And, and so part of it is again is is trying to get them to see that they can't keep, they can't keep um, lying, thinking somehow we're we're a pushover because we're trying to love them through this. There is points that consequences have to stick, and hopefully the consequences are outlined before there is an offense. So they know already what's going to happen. So you don't have to say, you will never, ever again do something, right? You can just say, okay, give me your keys. You're not going to drive for a few days. Okay, you're not going to get any money this time because you didn't carry out your part. And just leave it at that. It's a simple statement. When you can enter into that, it's so, it's so freeing. It's so freeing. You don't have to go down with the ship because they, they lied to you or did something they weren't supposed to do, Right. Here's 
here's an example of what I'm referring to, how to respond. I imagine it's hard, it's hard to be honest when you know I am upset and you are ambivalent about stopping. Your lying is never going to help you. Just a statement. It doesn't have to be a big drawn-out lecture. And my point underneath this picture is their lies have nothing to do with you. Always remember that. It's important to learn how to take a step back and realize that your loved one's lies have nothing to do with you. We're responsible only for ourselves. We are not responsible for them. Their actions might feel as though they are tied into who we are or what we did. They are, they are entirely responsible for their lies and the desire to hurt the family members they claim to care for. So there's a point where you do step in and start setting boundaries. You just don't give them free reign. But it's done in such a thoughtful way we're not, we're not part of the chaos. We're not part of the dysfunction of it. And I'll say it's harder to do than, it, than I'm saying. And I often will joke, I had, I had my, my older son, I have four kids, two, two girls, two boys. I had two girls first and then two boys. My first boy, um, I lost my salvation three or four times off of him. I'm, I'm kidding. Um, because I would, he was the one child that could get under my skin and absolutely wear me to nothing and just... And my wife and I, we, we'd have these, we'd have these patterns where uh, I would just be now at the time he he went from five six to six three, you know, in high school juniors to to end of his senior year six three. And I'm looking up at him, and he struggled with substance abuse, and it was in something that he's worked through, and he's been sober now for five years, which is wonderful, and he's done very well. But but it has been quite a long road and a lot of just a lot of a, a lot of pain. But it, but the, but we have to. But I, the point of bringing him up is, it's it's something where, when I when I try to capture all that he's done, it's hard to be objective with the amount of hurt and cost and brokenness within us in ways, because that's where I have to deal with my stuff. It's not his stuff. It's my stuff. It's kind of not fair, is it? But it's truthful, and that's where we step back, stay objective, and understand that you know, him and I have done through a lot of work and a lot of therapy and there's still more to do. It's not, you know, we're close to being done. And through that though, we, I think there's a higher level of regard and, and appreciation and respect because I think as he's, as he's become clear and, and understanding what's going on, he can truly see the sincerity of our heart. And yet I will say, he couldn't see it when I was upset with him. Couldn't see it. <coughs> he would say, I, I hurt him terribly with the things I said and I'm sure I did. Never in a million years wanting to. And I, my heart breaks to think about it. And I still have amends to make with him for things I've said. I could fully justify every one of them times ten. But what's that get me? I want relationship with him. I want him to want to be around. I want him to see you know, uh, the goodness in our family, not to, not to label us in a certain way, where he himself, in his, in his inebriated state, could not even comprehend what he looked like, how he acted. But as he gets clearer and hears, learns more things, he began to say, shoot, I really did that? And it's almost like he, was, he wasn't there. And oftentimes, those who have been hurtful to us, they don't recall what's happened. They don't. But we still carry it until we get our pound of flesh. And that's the worst thing we could do. Everybody loses at that point. Try not to take on the pain and the hurt and the negativity of what your loved one is, 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 
is doing to the family. Remember, it has nothing to do with you. This is a reflection that loved ones and their addiction and, and them alone. So how do we untangle this behavior? Try to spell out what you want to accomplish in the conversation. I want to understand what you're experiencing. I want to try to be helpful if I can. There again is a rehearsed statement that we, we think about before we, we meet with them so we're ready to share something regardless of the fanfare going on. If he comes in, guns a-blazing, we'll get him to a different place and let him see a different response from us. You know, there's, it's, um, there's an element, I think, of just reactivity that, that we anticipate so we're ready for it in a way that we, we, we play it out. But we don't have to go that way, you know. Love covers a multitude of sins. If we can love them through this in a way, they can begin to calm down and realize there's nothing to fight about. And the, and, the, and the greater point is, you know, trying to get them, you know, how, how do they understand I'm trying to help them? How can I be helpful? And if you, do, if you do happen to get a response like that feels like an honest one, don't forget to reinforce them for being honest. You know, you, you'll, you'll get these gold nuggets if you're really listening of sincerity, of brokenness, and, and of helplessness. And they're there, but sometimes the noise is so loud we can't hear it. But in a moment of truth, they'll say something profoundly significant and sometimes we're so wound up we don't care or we're so overwhelmed with our own stuff we're not listening but when they speak truth there's a golden moment there they thank you thank you that really i heard your heart thank you you know what that does the defenses fall everybody can now breathe he felt heard she felt heard and that sets a whole different tone of of connection that may have been missed for a long time, long period of time, and we set it up in a way of how we choose to, to engage and what we determine to be the true outcome of that. Now, kind of going back to the whole dynamic of consequences, you know, you know in, in the point of lying, um, we, we still can be truthful. You know, putting some consequences in place for lying is a bit trickier. You want to be clear that you don't appreciate their dishonesty, all the while avoiding being too punitive, which is actually increases the line and and really the, the acting out. So if we're if we're putting ourselves in a place where uh, we're trying to offer help and putting them in a better place, and we want and we're going to slam them with it with a big offense because they they lied or we caught them in a lie, we're, we're we're really breaking their spirit more than we're shaping their spirit, even though they deserve to be knocked to the ground and stepped on. What does that get us? A much more broken relationship, and you really, you really don't feel better. I can, I can speak to that. And so, part of it is a matter of just, of, of just trying to step back and understand. We, we, there's a reason we say no, 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 no. How many say no more than they do yes to their kids that way? Yeah, it's easy to do because you can almost anticipate what they're going to say. You say no before they finish a the sentence because we don't want to hear it. That's when we're intolerant. And, th- and what does it do to their minds and their hearts? Screw it. I don't care. I'm, I don't care. And they'll, they'll go out and use or whatever just because they're more angry. And we lost that moment. So in doing so, tr- I, I, I like to say, find a way to say yes. What, what would yes look like? For example, they're, they're asking you something. We say, I'm on board with that as long as you first complete your chores I've asked you to do. Of course you can. All you have to do is finish the yard work. Why, absolutely. Whenever you choose to give me a clean drug screen, why not? I would love to take you shopping once you have a job. It, 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 it even has a nice ring to it. It's not, no, you can't. 
absolutely not. Of course, we absolutely we can do that. It's almost kind of confusing to them because you're putting the responsibility on them that they, that they agreed to at some point saying it's waiting for you when this is done. It's not just grinding them down because they did something wrong. And it gives a whole new level of energy. Substance abusers are not, are not stupid. If telling the truth about drug using or drinking is going to, be, is going to get them in trouble, why not lie and, and, and avoid a negative consequence? So we know ahead of time their motive. They're not going to be honest. They're not going to be honest. Most times. Now, they might come to a point, at, I, I, I screwed up, I used, I shouldn't have done it. I deserve this consequence or you don't have to give me money this month or whatever. But it's got to be a point, I think, that, that they begin to see uh, a matter of, because they're lying, we don't have, we don't have to personalize it and then, and then lose our cool because we felt they shouldn't have done that. Because it's a natural reaction, but, we, but it's never one that works, Right. You know, in short, if people have no reason to lie, the evidence suggests that they'll be, that they'll be truthful. Active addiction jacks their beha- hijacks their behavior and causes them to do things that they would never otherwise consider. Active addiction has its own state of being. When a person flips into active addiction, everything can change. Their thinking, their speaking, the way of behaving may all change, almost as if they are a completely different person from the non-using state of the being. I think we've all, we've all experienced that. We've seen them just break down, deteriorate, and, and all of a sudden they're just a different person. And yet, in the active using stage, we, we have to almost be prepared for that and, and wait for them to sober up and hopefully get them to a better place or hopefully talk them into some level of treatment and get them to a better place. But they're not going to go there if we're at odds. They're not going to go under protest. Typically, they won't do that. So the hope would be that we can somehow get them to a better place from that active addiction point. And we've all experienced that, right? From the family's perspective, the most, for most loved ones, people with substance problems, lying and stealing from the family are the ultimate betray- betrayal of trust, which, is what, which makes supporting someone who's lying so very difficult. So again, you know, by nature of them doing so much wrong, we, we feel so violated and we feel so taken advantage of that we just are going to hold that line in our stubbornness. Yet in turn, all it does is, is keep that vicious cycle going in ways that we would probably have done better had we thought about it. When working with substance abusers, dishonesty is the mechanism used for survival, noting that in particular, individuals with substance use disorders do whatever they need to survive despite the long-term negative effects. That's when we don't know they're impulsive and that they're struggling. You know, consider compassion over judgment when it comes to being lied to. Never condone dishonesty. I do think that the more we, we, we can look past the behavior to see what's truly going on for our loved one, the more likely it is we'll be able to be more effective managing them. Through compassion, they can begin to let their own resentments fade away, which is in and of itself more peaceful to, to exist for them. So the whole thing of passion and discernment for them is as we create more of a complementary environment, they may not challenge it because it feels it feels like this is nice. I want to stay there. Now, if they do, we can still stay. Remember, if they want to escalate and do something, we're not going to play the game. We're just not going to do it. We're we're at a very different place, and we're going to stay at a different place. You may have to pray ahead of time and ask God for wisdom and peace and patience. But in doing so, you've made a decision. You are not going to escalate. You're going to do it differently, and and that's a transformation for us. Forget them. 
we're the one that needs that, 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 that deliverance, right? And it's out there waiting for us if we begin to draw from it and practice it and, and desire that strength. I won't go into this for length, but I, I've listed 10 elements of positive communication. To be brief, be brilliant, be positive, label your feelings. For example, do you know how much this hurts me or how much I appreciate what you've done? Offer understanding statements that you, that you, you, know, you believe, you, know, you, you, you want to help them in a way that you're understanding where they're coming from. You know, take partial responsibility. This is a tough one because um, we're not taking on full responsibility, but there's always a part that we can own on how we interacted, how we, how we, what our attitude was to our quick no, slow yes. There's a point that we have to say, you know what, I owe you an apology too. I did not handle this well. I really messed this one up. And I, 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 I'm asking for your forgiveness. So they'll sometimes say, absolutely not, because they love that sometimes, especially if they've been you know, hurt in the past but want to want to have one up on you and say, that's okay. I, I, I still realize I had, something, I had something to do with that, and I just want you to know I realize my part in this. You've modeled something for them that hopefully will, re, will cycle back to you through them, but just by nature of how you handle something. Offer to help. You know, there's points where we can step in and say, you know, like, um, would it help if I did that? Or what do you think if I do this for you? Again, doing something that would maybe out of the, out of the ordinary, right? Avoid the lecture trap. It's, it's something that we can all fall into. And we, when we know we're lecturing, when we are talking at that person rather than with that person. You know, the, you, you can, you know as you learn uh, emotional intelligence and understand self-awareness, it, it, those that lecture and keep going, it's more for us than for them. And the, you see their eyes glaze over. You, you can see they've already checked out and disassociated and are somewhere else and just sitting there listening because they're not going to hear what we're saying. And that's kind of a survival tactic. It's almost like waterboarding, you know, when we lecture like that. We just go into a different place, and they, they hate it. And I'll hear this from teenagers, young people. It's more our problem than theirs at that point. So we have to do what we can to avoid lecturing. La- the labeling element of it, right? We, you're an addict. You know, you're a, you're a thief. You're this. We have to be so careful not to be tempted to go there. The blaming trap, you know, when, when we're worried, frustrated, and sad about a situation, it, it's easy to get caught in the blaming trap. We want to blame. We want to. We want to. We want to attack in ways that, even though it may be justified, it absolutely severs any anything we're trying to build on. So, what about constructive communication? Show respect and maturity when talking to your loved one. Be honest. Allow the person. Uh, allow the other person time and opportunity to share their views. You know, sometimes we just have to listen. And, and you may have to bite your tongue and just let them keep talking, even if they're rambling. Because they want to know if you're listening or not. And if it, gets, if it gets maddening, just say, okay, let me make sure I'm hearing you. Sometimes you can stop it very gently. Let me make sure I'm hearing you. This is what I'm hearing you say. At least you, you, they can feel like that you're, you're wanting to make sure you're listening, which at least gets them to, to, to stop, the, just to stop the, their part of trying to justify something. But it has to be done... You know, it, with truth and love, it has to be done with a level of staying engaged, right? Um, you know, use eye con, use eye statements when you're talking about your feelings. Work together towards a solution. Avoid insults, shouting, unfounded accusations, dragging up the past, and sarcasm. Again, when when, when we tend to go, when we tend to bring up past events. The biggest, the biggest statement that is to them and us is we haven't forgiven them. We haven't forgiven them. 
and they know it and that's a major setback because they know it and we just lost a lot of points with that one because we're going back we're, we're hitting below the belt and that's where it becomes again easily accessible but 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 a very very tragic mistake that we fall into Rather than focusing on winning, the argument or, or suggesting that the other person is overreacting, aim for understanding. Now, let me summarize this. We're about, we're about done here. Honesty and recovery, getting sober. For recovery to be genuine, at some time the recovering person must commit to achieving honesty, which is opposite to addiction. Honesty must be the backbone of one's recovery program. To recover, one must... One has to admit to the existence of a problem and then be honest about it for the need for help. Practicing addicts fear honesty. Recovering addicts may not always like honesty, but they accept honest criticism and learn to turn their weaknesses into strengths. Honesty is specifically important to recovering addicts because it, it, it counteracts the addictive process. Dishonesty eventually causes isolation, most often only in the only the addict knows they are being dishonest and is forced inward and away from others. Recovering addicts need to embrace the concept of honesty because it allows them to continue recovery. By being honest, recovering people become aware of their own issues early enough to do something about it. Honest people work to be, op- to be open and genuine. They are proud of themselves in a very genuine way. They want to know themselves better so they can improve. Honesty is about connecting with ourselves and others. It is a form of transparency. It allows us to have intimate relationships. Now, I share that from the heart of of one that's been using, but that also has to come from us. We have to be honest. We have to be transparent. We're not perfect. We're not trying to be perfect, but we have to be honest with our own shortcomings in a way that not just says it and says it and says it and says it, but we, we say it with intent to change and we get better at that change. And that's measurable by how we handle them and how we view life and how we manage our own selves. So honesty is across the board as we look at the statistics. Substance abusers don't lie any, any more than the rest of us. And it's something that we look to honesty to really find a way of connecting and being vulnerable. This poem from Charles Finn is very powerful. And I'll close with this. Please hear what I'm not saying. Please listen carefully and try to hear what I'm not saying. I loved, what I'd like, I'm sorry, what I'd like to be able to say, what, what for survival I need to say, but what I can't say, I don't hide, I don't like hiding. I don't like playing superficial phony games. I want to stop playing them. I want to be genuine and spontaneous and me but you've got to help me you've got to hold out your hand even when it's the last thing i want i want to see i, I want only you can wipe away my wipe 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 away from my eyes the blank stare of the of the breathing dead only you can call me into liveliness each time you are kind and gentle and encouraging each time you try to understand me or understand because you really care and the poem is much longer than this, but I just captured a portion of it, but it's very powerful. And it really is from the heart of one in recovery trying to communicate something and often failing on how it should come across. But this becomes their heart. This becomes the heart of those of us that want 
and need to do a better job in, in, in the way we live, interact with people, and really engage. Now, I throw a lot at you. And again, again, a lot came, but I want to have you have a couple of minutes, let it soak in, and if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them for you. Questions? Yes. So you're, you're putting alcoholics and addicts in separate categories? No, uh, not at all. Okay. Not at all. I think it's, the, the dynamic is there to self-medicate. You know, um, oftentimes, you know, people that will struggle with narcotics versus those that have alcohol, you'll see different populations. But it, but the but the treatment process, the way that you, the, the the injury dynamic is the same, every bit the same, and it has to be approached by, by going after the injured heart, and understanding as I started tonight, when person begins to seek a way, they find something even by accident that they can stop and not hurt, and not feel and not be struggling oh my gosh it feels so good it starts so innocently and so simply and they want to keep going back to get that feeling with no intention to change no intention to destroy and and create problems that's not even on the radar it's just to stop hurting and if you can take that approach and come back to that basic place it will give you so much more grace and compassion in, in managing what becomes at times a horrible situation. And I'll, I, I'll add this again. There are times that the situations get worse because of how we handle it. And I'm not putting it all on us, but we have to keep in mind how are we handling this that could either improve the situation or make it worse. Is that your question? Okay. Anyone else? Yes? That is a great question. That is a great question. It doesn't have an easy answer. But I think in order to, to think of where we want it to go, we have to know where they're at. We have to understand their dynamic enough that, that they can hear us in a way that it shows compassion, concern, and that they're going to benefit from this. So it's not what we want in our agenda. It's what are we wanting to accomplish when we sit down and talk in a way that I have to approach it in a favorable way that they'll be receptive and even engaging. So in that context, I mean, if we want to be specific, you know, for example, okay, let's use a car, for example. You're letting them drive your car, and it's banged up, looks like something out of a junkyard, and you've you've just closed your eyes, let it be, let it be. Now it's to a point that it's just ridiculous. So you, you sit down and basically try to communicate at the right time. Okay, that's very important. We just don't have... They're coming at 1 a.m. stone. That's not the time to talk. It's, it's get when they're in a better place. And understand, I think, in their mind, first of all, they didn't, they didn't intentionally bang it up. They were stoned or just or, or hung over or whatever. But we have to use a point of, you know, we let you use the car, and we're happy to let you use the car. But what's become of it is, is really a challenge for us. And how do we, how do we go forward with this where we're not continuing to see more damage and yet and not upset you because we need we need to get this car fixed and you're probably not going to have a car for a while ask them to answer it where they're not feeling attacked and judged and 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 and, and damned for this and i'm just kind of speaking out of the top there's a there'd be a more thoughtful way to do this 
you've heard of the acronym HALT, right? H-A-L-T. I've added two S's to that. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, sick, and stressed. Now, if you think about it, one of these are always going on. Always going on. But the, but the, but the, true, the true emotional intelligent genius would basically be aware of where they are before they start a conversation. Like, okay, I'm so tired right now. This is not a good time to go there and say this because I am not going to do well. Or I'm so stressed about something happened earlier. I probably need to postpone the talk until I can kind of decompress and get myself to a better place. Or you see them stressing out over something else, and yet you want to really talk to them. But you can tell that moment they, they, they don't have it together. So part of it is read what's going on with you, them, and try to capture a time that's, that you have them at their best and you're at their best. You're at your best to try to have a, a more successful outcome. I, no, I think you can even schedule a time and say, look, you know, let's, let's do a check-in. Kind of don't make it threatening. Just let's do a check-in, kind of see how you're doing and what maybe we can do better. Or, you know, it depends upon what the arrangement is, you know, and, and really what the agreement was that, would, that may have to be modified or adjusted. Anyone else? Sorry. Sure. Say again? My number three son is a meth addict. He lives on the mm-hmm. street. Mm-hmm. He's lived on the street a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, in and out of jail. In and out of rehab. My number one son is an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. My number two son is violent. My number three son is a meth addict. Mm-hmm. My stepson has issues. They're all, in my opinion, addicts. But my oldest son is functional. Mm-hmm. But his children can't even communicate with him. It's a very sad mm-hmm. Number two son, two kids in college, two at home. They don't communicate. Number three son, meth addict, has the hardest goal to make sure women and children are fed without restriction. Mm-hmm. Number four son is a narcissist. So, as a parent, number four is a slave child. It's really hard to communicate with the boys. They don't, none of them, other than Kevin, which is meth, um, his second brother, they communicate some. But all of the boys think that Kevin's useless, trash, etc. But truly, he's the only child we have. So, how is a mom? Any suggestions? Are, do they all live close by? Do you, do you see them regularly? Um, no, not really. They're all close by other than one in Texas. Uh, so, so there's not regularly they come over and uh-huh. dinner anything. Okay, yeah. You know, it's a it's a very it's a painful, horrible situation. There's no worries around that. It's a matter of really taking care of you in this, and you know discerning what you can change and what you can't and trying to find the peace in the middle of that. It's, 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 it has to be a divine intervention. Right. And with my grandchildren, so I have seven grandchildren mm-hmm. from two of the four boys. <clears throat> That's tough. Mm-hmm. The grand, grandchildren doesn't even have a relationship with their parents. So they call mama mm-hmm. and depend on me for their 
giving them I don't I didn't have money when they were growing up mm-hmm. but we'd go to church and go to the park and play and have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and just have a great time yeah and it's hard as being a mom especially this week to the 14 year olds that eat dinner for excellent grades and he said I moved downstairs and my brother went away to college I don't even see my mom you don't see again he doesn't even see them he doesn't mm-hmm. ever go upstairs yeah. and it just absolutely broke my heart I did not realize that they mm-hmm. were at that point in their time and so you know they're trying to reach out to me and all I can get is love that's right and you become that that, that example of love and you become that stabilizer and by nature of what you're continuing to provide they'll carry that in their hearts forever and that could get them through these more difficult times because you're modeling something different than they're used to yeah it's it's not an easy situation at all yeah well I'm sorry anyone else all right John any thank you very much thank you you're welcome thank you Thank you.